Welcome back to the Kogo Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today I'm going to offer a reasonably brief talk, which I'm calling the quandaries of Russia's anti-revolutionary revolution. And as we together begin to study the Russian Federation, it's my hope that this talk will help us to set the table, to lay a foundation, to give us a starting point from which to commence our studies of contemporary Russian politics. And it seems only fitting to me to begin with a line that I heard some years ago, and I've heard a couple times since, and I don't know to whom to attribute this. If you can figure it out, please shoot me an email. My email's in the show notes. But someone clearly much wiser than myself once said something to the effect of, anyone who celebrates the collapse of the Soviet Union is heartless. And anyone who mourns the collapse of the Soviet Union is a downright fool. And it's at the intersection of this problem that I seek to launch our investigations into Russian contemporary politics. In April of 2001, at his second annual State of the Nation address, Putin said, quote, The last decade has been a turbulent and one can say, without exaggeration, a revolutionary decade for Russia. A revolutionary decade for Russia, 1991 until 2001. Now, while I rarely find myself agreeing with Vladimir Putin, I, for one, wholeheartedly agree with Putin here. Indeed, I will go so far as to say that Putin was wise to refer to the collapse of communism as quote-unquote revolutionary, because the social, political, and economic changes since 1991 in post-Soviet states are on par with the massive changes that we saw in the French Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the Russian Revolution itself. And I can't stress enough here the degree to which the changes post-1991 were overwhelming for the Russian people and for all of the people who lived in the Soviet bloc. In Putin's 2005 State of the Nation Address, he said that the dissolution of the Soviet Union was, quote, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Now, on this, I will not agree with Vladimir Putin. Quite obviously, World Wars I and II were, in reverse order, the first and second greatest geopolitical tragedies of the 20th century. On some level, Vladimir Putin must know that. And though his rank ordering is clearly off, and we can imagine why, and though it seems he's being rather disingenuous, calling the collapse of the Soviet Union the greatest political catastrophe of the 20th century, it is nevertheless the case that Russia went from being one of the two quote-unquote great superpowers to feeling rather powerless. And since 1991 as Russia has been unsure about its place in the global order, it's struggled with uninterrupted domestic crises. The post-Soviet process of radical privatization gave rise to unprecedented inequality. 
Russia became an oligarchy, a plutocracy, and frankly, a kleptocracy, ruled by thieves. The economic collapse of 1998 was tantamount to the Great Depression, as measured by GDP and job losses and economic hopelessness in all sorts of ways. The Russian economic collapse could easily be called the Great Depression. It was traumatic. And while we will talk about the politics of it and a little bit about the macroeconomic problem that was posed, let's not overlook the human cost of economic crises. These were real people. Russian people, they loved their children too. And it was an economic catastrophe. And the Russian economic catastrophe of the 1990s was made worse by the numerous political catastrophes. In 1993, there was a constitutional crisis. Boris Yeltsin was threatened with impeachment. He dissolved parliament. He sent special forces into the Duma. 187 killed, hundreds more injured. This is crisis. And some speculate that it was because of these twin economic and political crises that in 1994, Yeltsin launched the first of two wars with Chechnya. Chechnya being one of 22 ethnic republics and the subject of a future lecture. And while I have no reason to comment on the conspiracy theory that it was the economic and political crises that drove Boris Yeltsin to launch a war which he hoped would serve as a great distraction from those crises, because I'm not convinced that that's true, it didn't work. Indeed, the first Chechen war was a disaster, and thus a need for a second Chechen war, which lasted from 2000 to 2009. And at the tail end of that first war, Boris Yeltsin stood for re-election, and the 1996 presidential election was chaotic. Yeltsin only won 35% in the first round. It was a shock to Yeltsin, and a shock to the Russian people. And while he ultimately won with 54%, that's a pretty tight race. Yeltsin didn't have the support of about half the Russian population. Indeed, he didn't have the support of much of his own government. And in 1998, Yeltsin suddenly dismissed his prime minister, Viktor Chernomerdin, and his entire cabinet. And in Yeltsin's effort to replace his prime minister, the Duma twice rejected his 35-year-old replacement, a guy called Karyenko. And if you haven't heard of Karyenko, neither had most of the Russian people. This guy was a total nobody. And in part out of the not unsubstantiated fear that Yeltsin was going to use the special forces to attack the Duma again, his third effort to put Karyenko in power was successful. The Duma acquiesced. But that's a crisis. So you have the collapse of this geopolitical behemoth, the Soviet Union, with the Russian Federation not really being able to carve out its place in the new world order. And then you have this series of uninterrupted crises throughout the 1990s. Economic, social, political crises. Yet few Western scholars have framed their analyses of Russia using the R word. 
revolution. Rather, it seems like most scholars viewed Russia's 1990s revolution as a transformation to democracy. And this implies a certain preordained outcome and a smooth path. And I remember when Russia was introduced to the AP Comparative Government and Politics class in 2005, and I was working assiduously to make sense out of Russian politics. I had just moved to Barcelona. I started a new job there, you know, and I was doing everything I could to seem competent. And I was reading lots about Russia. And of course, as my luck would have it, I had a student there, a really bright young Russian woman who I was desperately afraid was going to realize the cold, hard truth, which is that her teacher was an imposter. And so many of the articles I was reading were called like Russia's managed democracy or Russia's ersatz democracy or Russia's path towards democracy or Russia's illiberal democracy or Russia on the path to a procedural democracy. These are all titles of articles that I read, that my students read. And these articles were written by distinguished scholars, really bright people, experts in the field. And they all had the same basic assumption. It was the assumption of Francis Fukuyama, one of the most respected political scientists of his generation, this end of history hypothesis, right? That with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the collapse of communism, more broadly speaking, that the future belongs to democracy and capitalism. That the only real alternative to Soviet-style communism or Chinese-style communism is Western liberal democracy and laissez-faire markets. This was the consensus among academic elites, on the left and right alike. And I will confess to you, my dear listener, that I thoroughly bought into that consensus. You know, it's what I was raised to believe. I'm a Cold War kid, a bicentennial baby. I was 13 when the wall fell. I was 15 when the Soviet Union collapsed. What did it mean when the wall fell and the USSR collapsed? It meant freedom, man. <laughs> Political and economic freedom. That's what I was taught. And while that narrative is heartening and thus tempting, that's not been the story. And it begs the question of why did scholars think Russian quote-unquote reform could unfold through ordinary as opposed to extraordinary means. You know, maybe we should give scholars some credit. You know, there wasn't really a framework for understanding this situation. You know, watching a massive empire unfold as if overnight. Watching a revolution against a revolutionary regime. The world's never seen anything quite like it. So I don't want to be too harsh on the academy or on the third estate, you know, the journalists of the world for getting it so wrong. But they got, <laughs> but they got it really wrong. And I got it wrong. You know, I read them, I listened to them, 
And we were all wrong about Russia. We believed, perhaps with our hearts as the guide, perhaps with our hopes drowning out our fears, that Russia's fate and Ukraine's fate and Kazakhstan's fate and Tajikistan's fate was tied to democracy and free markets. And tragically, we were wrong. And it wasn't wrong to hope for that. But it was foolish to not recognize that what would have been necessary to bring Russia from a heartless, brutal, one-party authoritarian communist state towards democracy would require something tantamount to revolution. And perhaps, perhaps, it's just a thought, it could be that Russians, even you know, revolutionary Russians, were so sick of revolutionary talk after 71 years that they themselves chose not to explicitly call what was happening in the 1990s a revolution. They couldn't call themselves revolutionaries. Revolution had cried wolf in Russia. And so what did we talk about? We talked about reform. What was necessary for Russia to rejoin the world order in a peaceful and fruitful way? What was necessary to carry Russia through these political, economic, and social crises of the 1990s? Well, I don't know, but it's something more than reform. It's something that's probably more tantamount to revolution. But Yeltsin kind of positioned himself as the anti-revolutionary revolutionary. Yeltsin promised a pragmatic program of reforms that would allow Russia to, quote-unquote, return to Europe and to return to a normal way of life, whatever that might mean. But by 1992, a paradox became clear to Yeltsin's government. You know, after more than seven decades of Soviet dictatorship, it turns out that institutionalizing a liberal democracy and a capitalist system in Russia would require revolutionary upheaval of the political, economic, and social order. Yeltsin and his government had to write a new constitution. They had to stage free, fair, competitive elections. They had to remove all the apparatchiks from the bureaucracy. They had to deploy economic shock therapy, one might say revolutionary shock therapy, to the economy. And the shock therapy, of course, led to the rise of the oligarchs, and the Yeltsin administration needed to rein in those oligarchs so that Russia didn't become some sort of kleptocracy, which it did. The Yeltsin government had to contain corruption. It had to decollectivize all the farms. It had to protect the borders. And in doing so, find all sorts of compromises with the ethnic republics. You know, republics like Chechnya, Ingushetia, North Ossetia. Those are the three that come to mind. And in the throes of all of that, Yeltsin and his government also had to fundamentally restructure the military. The military that had just got humiliated by Afghanistan after the Soviet occupation from 1979 to 88. Ugh. No one learns lessons, man. It's brutal. 
So what I'm trying to get to here is that there's a fundamental disconnect between Yeltsin's aspirations for normalcy and the costly and turbulent revolutionary actions that were necessary to actualize the very return to normalcy that Yeltsin aspired to. You got that? Because that's kind of the core of what I'm trying to argue here. Yeltsin wanted a return to normalcy, but the norm had been shattered with the demise of the communist system. Yeltsin wanted slow piecemeal reform, but reform wasn't enough. Something like revolution was required to put Russia on a stable and sane domestic path. And the impossibility of the situation in which Yeltsin found himself led to the rise of ultranationalists like Vladimir Zhirinovsky and the communist spitfire Gennady Zhuganov. And Zhirinovsky and Zhuganov, their power increased substantially in the Duma from 1993 to 99. So what I'm trying to say here is that Yeltsin had to walk this tightrope. He had to pursue revolutionary policies under the auspices of reform because the Russian people weren't down for another revolution. And while he was doing that, he had political enemies knocking at the door, gaining more power, making his life terribly difficult. And look, I would be remiss to not add at this point that Boris Yeltsin is hardly the most competent politician. You know, if we were to engage in a game of what-if history, we could think about what if Mikhail Gorbachev or some other globally respected, sharp-minded Russian politician were the president of Russia in the 1990s. Nobody will accuse Boris Yeltsin of being globally respected or sharp-minded. Boris Yeltsin was a first-rate, second-rate man. He was a third-tier politician, and he was more than a bit of a drunk. And while I would hardly want to poke fun at the alcohol addiction from which he seemed to suffer, it didn't help in navigating these delicate matters. So after barely winning his re-election in 1996, Yeltsin faced a bona fide quandary. In the absence of an ideological or a religious vision, what should his vision of Russia be? And how could he articulate this vision to the Russian people, a people for whom revolution cried wolf? And since Yeltsin was almost epically inarticulate, since he couldn't espouse a clear vision, in part because he didn't have one, politicians and entrepreneurs alike, perhaps understandably, oriented their decision-making towards their own short-term interests. And that's how the oligarchy, the plutocracy, the kleptocracy in Russia rose. It happened on Boris Yeltsin's watch, in some substantial part because Boris Yeltsin was not optimally competent, because despite being the president, he didn't have a clear vision, and because in the 1990s, the Russian people were not open to the type of big 
vision governmental leadership that was necessary to solve Russia's problems. They had, bluntly put, just about enough of governmental promises after 71 years of the Soviet Union. And so it was on Boris Yeltsin's watch, while the president of Russia struggled mightily to stay on his feet during public functions, and struggled yet more to articulate a vision for his country. In the 1990s, Russia careened from crisis to crisis. Domestically, it was a political and economic disaster. The social fabric that was bound together by Soviet chains had come apart, and Russia had clearly lost her place in the global order. And now you can begin to understand the how and the why of Vladimir Putin's rise. Vladimir Putin came to power to make Russia great again. In his first year in office, he restored the old Soviet national anthem with new non-ideological lyrics. He promised a return to Europe, and he promised to renegotiate relations with the West in a way that would benefit the Russian people. George W. Bush, the American president from 2001 to 2009, said, I looked Vladimir Putin in the eye, and I was able to get a sense of his soul. I found him to be very straightforward and trustworthy, and we had a very good dialogue. Bush's successor, Obama, of course, tried to hit the reset button with Russia, but in so doing, he appointed Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, who, when she was running against Barack Obama in 2008, said that Putin, quote-unquote, doesn't have a soul. You know, Vladimir Putin and Hillary Clinton had a terribly uneasy relationship. And in part because of that, Putin's efforts to bring Russia into the global world order were not met with the open arms he was hoping for. And it was hard for Putin, despite his rather pragmatic patriotism, to solidify the Russian economy. He didn't manage the markets. Russia fell prey to the resource curse, and when oil and natural gas prices were high, the Russian economy soars, and when oil and natural gas prices plummet, the Russian economy plummets right along with it. Putin really hasn't managed to breathe life into the Russian banking system. He hasn't been able to promote the type of foreign investment that would make Russia great again. You know, part of the reason he hasn't been able to attract foreign investment is because he hasn't contained the oligarchs that are beholden to him. He's been engaging in petro-diplomacy, using oil and natural gas as a way to reward authoritarians that are keen on him and to punish countries that expect the Russian government to promote human rights and rule of law. And I should say, since I stumbled on it, that that's another reason that Putin hasn't been able to promote foreign investment. Right? There's no reliable rule of law in Russia. One would feel uneasy making a major investment in Russia, given the endemic corruption that's at the core of the contemporary Russian project. 
Putin failed to promote housing reform. He's failed to promote the technology sector, although he's made some headway to that end, I should say. And despite one of Putin's great successes in getting Russia into the World Trade Organization in 2012 after an 18-year bid, Russia remains economically stultified. And it's in part because of this economic malaise that Putin has staked his claim to legitimacy in promoting unity, you know, cracking down on dissenting media, squeezing opposition parties, reining in his prime minister and most members of the Russian Duma. And to that end, Putin's been promoting rule by law instead of rule of law, right? There are laws, and there's a constitution, and there's a judiciary, and there's a supreme constitutional court, but the laws don't apply to all Russian people equally. Putin loyalists get to enjoy one set of laws, and everybody else be damned. And though I said this previously, perhaps it bears repeating at this point. You know, 145 million people live in Russia. And they're good people. And they have children who like to play, who want to have hope for the future. So tempted as we might be to villainize Putin for his baneful influence on the global order and his twisted ways of meddling in the politics of other countries, it's critically important that we bear in mind that Russian people suffer in the most ghastly ways because of Putin. Putin, who rose to power in some substantial part because the Russian people and the global community failed to realize the revolutionary situation in which Russia found herself post-collapse of the USSR. And the very failure to appreciate the revolutionary circumstances in Russia following the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, perhaps combined with a Western desire to punish and to exploit Russia, led to the rise of a plutocracy headed by a jingoistic, demagogic, authoritarian strongman in Vladimir Putin. So whatever potential there might have been for a smooth post-Soviet transition to democracy and capitalism and the rule of law, well, that potential was squandered. It was squandered because the Russian people, the Russian government, and the international community didn't appreciate the quandary in which Russia found herself post-Soviet collapse. And that, my dear friends and listeners, are some careful considerations from which I hope we can commence our studies of the Russian Federation. It's a lot to chew on, and I hope you make ample time to digest it. I also hope that if you dig the Kogo pod, if you're getting something out of it, if it means something to you, if you're learning, and if you want to support the project, head over to buymeacoffee.com slash Kogopod. 
I link to in the show notes. Of course, you don't have to. And if you're my student, please don't. (laughs) But if you have the means to support independent creators and this podcast does something for you, please do. And if it's any help to you, I've linked to my lecture notes in the show notes of this podcast as well. And with that, I wish you health and wellness. Please stay funky and I'll talk to you soon.